From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, a podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Evan Falkenbury. And what are the significance of the black churches to these roads? When they were abandoned by white folks, they were taken over by the black folks, and all of their churches were located on them. Because got a church next to a white highway, somebody's going to throw a bomb on it or, or you know, just, just will not be seen. Uh, I think I told you, Native Americans and, and folks with a lick of sense uh, that are vulnerable don't want to be seen. You stay out of sight as much as possible. And this is one way to do it. This is a black road. White folks don't use it. And it makes perfect sense. In, in a hostile environment to not be seen. You just heard Tom Magnuson discussing black roads or backways with one of our field scholars, Kimber Thomas. Two questions. Who is Tom Magnuson and what are backways? Rachel, could you tell us first about Tom? Tom Magnuson first contacted us at the Southern Oil History Program back in 2013 to see if we would be interested in researching what he called black roads in rural Orange County, North Carolina, not far from our offices at the Southern Oral History Program. Tom had founded the nonprofit Trading Path Association back in 1999 to trace and preserve colonial era trading paths throughout the Southeast. He had a theory about roads and race in Orange County. I remember he told us that Nobody ever built T-intersections. He knew all about transportation and roads. And he said, no one ever built T-intersections. So if you're ever driving around in rural Orange County and you see a T-intersection now, there's the ghost of a vanished road on the other side. And he claimed, in many cases, if you followed those ghostly pathways, you would find physical evidence of former black businesses, schools, and churches. His hypothesis was that the state took certain roads off their maintenance lists. They would purposely let them fall into disrepair as a subtle message to African Americans to leave. But instead, those roads, he thought, became especially useful to blacks as safe passage away from rights, at least for a time. Tom wanted us to interview people who used these backways in the past to find out more. That's how our project on backways got started. To explain what exactly backways are and what they look like, listen to Darius Scott, a PhD candidate in geography at UNC Chapel Hill. Well, currently backways look a ton of different ways. Some are essentially just woods now, trees and everything, and then Others are paved roads that we know and drive on every day. Um, I think the unifying sort of thing about a backway is its history, which is um, basically they were these informal wagon roads that were just put down by farmers, black farmers in the rural south to you know, transport crops, get to church, things like that. And one of the characteristics of them was that they were primarily used, I think, by African-Americans to avoid interaction um, potentially violent interaction with um, other races, particularly white people, during the Jim Crow era. In this episode of Press Record, to celebrate Black History Month, 
Our focus will be on our project, Back Ways, Understanding Segregation in the Rural South. We will talk to researchers working on this project, and you will hear from several people we've interviewed talk about their experiences using Backways. In our first segment, From the Field, Part 1, you will hear Seth Koch, an assistant professor of American Studies at UNC, and Kimber Thomas, a PhD candidate in American Studies at UNC, discuss with Rachel the origins of the project, how local governments marginalized African Americans, and on whether or not rural isolation offered any protection for African Americans. In our second segment, From the Field, Part 2, you will hear Darius Scott, his advisor, Dr. Betsy Olson from UNC's Geography Department, and Evan talk about the importance of backways, how the study of geography relies on oral history in new ways, and why land ownership was and still is crucial to African Americans in the American South. And in our final segment, Tip Jar, you will hear from Dr. Ashley Farmer, a soon-to-be assistant professor at Boston University. She'll give some advice for what to do in an oral history interview when the interviewee is hesitant to talk about their childhood, a back way, if you will, of a different sort. For more information about Backways, our archive, and the Southern Oral History Program, please visit our website at sohp.org, and be sure to subscribe to Press Record on iTunes and help us spread the word. From the Field, Part 1. Rachel, you had a chance to have a conversation with two researchers about Backways. How did it go? It was great. Seth Koch was working at the Southern Oral History Program when Tom Magnuson first came to us with his ideas about race and roads in the South. And Kimber Thomas has been doing many of the interviews for the Backways Project recently. So we got to listen to some of the interviews that Kimber has done. We listened to interviews with Howard Lee, the former mayor of Chapel Hill, Robert Campbell, and Bernice Hackney, all of whom talk about their experiences, good and bad, with roads and rural segregation. Seth, I wanted to start with you um, because you and I were there together at the beginning when that first email from Tom Magnuson came in. I remember we were standing in the hallway sort of looking at this and thinking, huh, this sounds interesting. Um, because Tom had written to us um, with this theory he had that during Jim Crow, uh, that in an era when many other places were um, uh, sort of creating sunset towns and chasing African Americans out, uh, North Carolina was using what he thought was a more subtle message that by just um, disinvesting from roads where there was heavy black infrastructure, they were hoping people would just leave. Yeah, that's exactly how Tom put it, and I think it, it sounded like such an interesting kind of theory to test. Um, and it was going to give us an opportunity, I think, to continue exploring um, these sort of geographies of, of, of rights and justice. And the idea that not only might North Carolina's government use an essentially a process of modernization to exclude a certain group, and the style of that being kind of as you say, subtle and insidious was, I think, particularly intriguing. And also intriguing was the idea that, uh, as Tom suggested, African Americans were actually using these abandoned roadways that had been abandoned in part of a campaign to 
weaken their communities, actually using them as sort of pathways towards resistance. So um, have we confirmed his theory? I think so. I mean, I've seen the roads with my own eyes, and it makes sense. And my interviews talk about the social experience, the political experience, and the geographical. So I think I think he's right. I think he's onto something. You don't go out there with a bulldozer and take the road apart, right? You just stop paying attention to it. And so over time, years, if not decades, the road deteriorates and, and falls out of use. And that's when people start selecting alternative pathways, almost in the same way that we see just directed paths on campus, where people have just chosen to cut across um, a space and we can see evidence of it because there's no grass growing there. But also, the decline of these institutions would have taken many years. Um, churches, general stores, schools. The timing is not felicitous for us because this process began, let's say, in the 20s. And so we have people who may be remembering events from their childhood, remembering stories that they've heard in their communities. But when you see something like Kimber and I have seen, this cemetery in the woods, there's a story there, right? right. Um, and we know that there, there are people who are... Um, who were buried and haven't, they had markers instead of tombstones because there was an, int- an intention to put a stone there eventually, but the community declined before the stone arrived. Mm-hmm. So we're really talking about sites of huge social and cultural significance that have been abandoned, not forgotten yet, but might be right on the edge of that. So let's talk about some of the interviews um, that you've done, uh, Kimber, and um, this one is with um, Howard Lee, who was mayor of Chapel Hill for a while, and we don't think of Chapel Hill as being a rural place, but back in the 60s and 70s, before the sort of boom of development, much of it was still quite rural, and he um, talks here about where African Americans lived and um, the decisions that the town made about those places. Where was the black community situated geographically in Chapel Hill? I would say, yeah, west Northwest, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that section of Chapel Hill, all on the on the west side of Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. except for one small development that was more on the north side of Chapel Hill, which is now Martin Luther King Boulevard mm-hmm. off Piney Mountain Road. Mm-hmm. But that road, at the time when we moved here, had almost no development on it at all. It had maybe a dozen houses. When we came, uh, that the road going into that subdivision was dirt, mm-hmm. uh, very land, narrow dirt road, mm-hmm. and just like every other section of, of town, very narrow dirt. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a legitimate reason for that. Mm-hmm. The legitimate reason is that the town refused to annex these areas. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you don't annex the areas, you don't have any obligation to um, improve, uh, provide improvement. Do you want to talk more about? Um, his interview at all or the context for what he was saying? Some of my interviews talk about the social experience of segregation. Howard Lee really goes into why the roads were abandoned. We're trying to get at an early instance um, of this sort of passive use of state power uh, to disempower and marginalize. And marginalize, Power-free absolutely. And that sense of marginality pushes, I mean, I think it's to some extent, I don't know if it pushes against or at least it complements some histories of the rural South that we know about that suggests the rural South was sort of a friendlier space where interdependency meant whites and African Americans had maybe easier relationships than they did in the town where it was easier to sort of segregate and rigidify. And you, can put, you can put a sign up in a shop window, it's much harder to do that in a meadow. Um, 
So how are these spaces to divvy up and how do these spaces fall into the sort of weird logic of Jim Crow? So Kimber, have any of your interviews talked about that, about the sort of different feeling uh, of living in Jim Crow if you're out in the rural areas than you would have experienced in town? Yeah, my interview with Mr. Bernice Hackney, who grew up on a large farm outside of Chapel Hill, um, really gets into that. And that interview is way more complex. Do you want to play it? Sure, I'll play a part of it now. But of course, you could experience uh, the poverty Mm-hmm. And you could experience the lack of economic opportunities uh, that uh, were were present, uh, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, what what was that like? We all were were, even though we own a hundred acres, uh, they said that you are uh, land rich and dirt poor. Mr. Hackney's story is unique because it. Uh, it's a sort of nuanced story of racial relations in the rural South. So this is the story of a black family who owned 100 acres out in the rural South. And he will tell you, I didn't experience segregation out on our land, but I experienced oppression in a different way. And that was in the form of economic oppression. You know, we didn't have much. We were, we didn't have access to the jobs. We were out by ourselves. So that metaphor, land rich, dirt poor, becomes a larger metaphor for like intra-racial um, responses to segregation. It's really potentially creating to a very powerful narrative about what whiteness is and what whiteness signifies and represents. White is the town, black is the country, Mm -hmm. and if we can keep the town and country separate and understand them as being separate, that really would contribute to a sort of mentality that I think would support segregation. And then, of course, that is supported by the very sort of municipal decision makers who are annexing or not and supporting roads or not. Uh, So they're actually sort of layering an institutional style of being over a set of kind of cultural and social assumptions that that benefited them. I mean, it sounds like from some of your interviews that um, these, that roads and the rural area, roads in the rural area were not always safe spaces. And I'm I'm thinking about this clip from Robert Campbell. Maybe we'll listen to that for a second. Did you ever encounter any instances of uh, racism, or did you experience segregation in the uh, rural parts of Chapel Hill? Oh yeah, that part got me like, hey, that part of that you didn't want to be in when it got dark. Oh, talk about talk a little bit about that. Uh, Highway fifty four, White Cross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, when uh, I mean, like, sometimes you get chased. Mm-hmm. Uh, car cars will chase you down the highway, try to run you off the road, mm-hmm. and so you know. Uh, we rode bicycles most of the places where we want to go, and but we knew what time to start heading back home. So that's a powerful image of young kids riding their bikes uh, down the road and needing to get back home before it gets dark. Mm-hmm. I think in that section, he was really talking about um, uh, signage, like the signage around, along rural roadways and how that was meant to instill fear and African-Americans coming into the towns along these major highways, Highway 54, I think is what he mentioned. Um, Why? What was on the signs? They were crosses, burning crosses. Yet another element of the sort of daily life of people of color in this context um, and the way in which the most normal behaviors like biking um, as a child would be become dangerous because of who you were and where you were. Um, and the it's hard personally for me to imagine being you know, who I am and the privilege
ones that I've experienced in my life, the, the stress of having to attend to all of these signs and signals as a young person particularly. Or as their parent. Or as their parent, absolutely. Um, you know, and we, we know today about African-American parents and, and the, the idea of the talk being given to young black men. Um, we can imagine something very similar ha- you know, ha- happening to um, Mr. Campbell's and his friends from their parents warning them about a stretch of 54. But they didn't need their parents to tell them that this area was dangerous because the people who meant to do them harm were out there with it, right? Right. right. And to have this understanding that when you go into certain parts that there's a, sp- a specific time to leave, right. to go home, mm-hmm. right. like, to operate that way on a daily basis. So it's not as simple as rural areas were were safer, more comfortable for African Americans than town. It was certain parts of certain areas um, and that's what Tom was trying to get at was the use of those abandoned roadways as pathways through a dangerous area. Absolutely. And, and what um, I mean in a way it makes me think of you know a child who takes a shortcut to avoid the bully's house mm-hmm. where if he knows the bully's going to be on the front porch. And when, when Tom introduced the project to us, he called it the Black Roads Project. And this was the term that was used by people who had told him about the phenomenon. Black roads were the roads that black people used to move through dangerous spaces in their community, to get around dangerous spaces. I was just going to say, um, I think back, back ways and black roads, that's a larger metaphor for resistance, that even though you live in these hostile areas, you can still find spaces around, you know, back ways around the brutality. I think as real historians, this gives us an opportunity to, to learn about a new a new area. I think we, we've spent a lot of time at the Real History Program talking to people about uh, sort of exceptional persons and exceptional philosophies and exceptional politics, um, all of which are hugely important. <laughs> um, but this is a different story about rights, as you say. It's um, it's not about it's not about voting. It's not about coalition building. It's it's not about um, community action. It's not about protests in the conventional ways that we're used to learning about them. But it is sort of about all of those things um, in much more kind of subtle mm-hmm. ways. Um, I won't say more complicated ways, but ways that are not as certainly not as obvious or familiar. And what do you recommend for other people who, you know, hear this and think, oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. We should think about that in our area, wherever that might be. What would you recommend to them? I would recommend driving around and locating the T intersections. That's the first <laughs> yeah. step. Yeah. yeah. And then and then looking to see what would be on the other side and going out and if you find a cemetery, I think that's the first clue. That's the first step. Yeah, I think I think that's a wonderful way of starting a research project is go for a walk and <laughs> and keep walking when the roadbed ends, right? Yeah. From the field part two. Evan, you also had a conversation about backways with two other researchers that covered different angles of the project. What did you talk about? I spoke with Darius Scott, who's a geography graduate student at UNC, and his advisor, Dr. Betsy Olson. And we talked about Darius's ongoing dissertation project, which is about backways in the rural south. I think it's interesting that there, there are a number of ways to sort of approach the question of what is a backway, where is it? For me, it's all about the stories and the history and the significance other people use them. And then I speak to folks like Tom, and it's sort of this forensic investigation of actually going out there and using maps and GIS to really figure out where they went. And Darius, 
He was um, the first student that I've worked with who showed an interest in oral histories and the potential for digital humanities to tell stories in different ways. Um, and so to, you know, to become familiar with this topic, something that was so close to what he was already interested in doing, um, to thinking about this relationship between infrastructure and communities um, was, you know, amazing. And then as he's developed it and, you know, really gotten into the data, and each time he brings back something, we just can't believe what people have said. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a joy. I mean, you weren't at all technophobic, which made you <laughs> kind of okay with this kind of project, you know, which actually requires, I mean, cartography, um, being able to look at historical maps and know what those mean, um, being able to conduct oral histories, which is, you know, a real talent and gift. Um, and then putting those together in ways that then the public, you know, someone like me who can, um, who's interested but doesn't have kind of the background knowledge or um, can, you know, really capture, capture the idea of what these are and why they're important. Well, you both hit on what I wanted to ask next, and, and Darius, you sent me a, a few clips to play, but before I do and before I hear your responses of what some of these interviews sound like, how is oral history interviewing people, how is that opening up your research into geography? Geographers are very good at sort of getting at very specific questions, but I think sometimes with oral histories it allows you to sort of meander out of the box a little bit, which can often like change what you're asking altogether and um, sort of provide some real historical context at the end of the day. I think when we play the clips we'll see how, you know, it's one thing to ask you know, what does this land mean to you? And that's another to ask, you know, how did you get this land? Where does it come from? Who had it first, you know? Let me play some of those oral histories. Okay. And then I'd love to hear both your and Dr. Olson's responses to them. So the first one you sent me was with Mary Cole. Before we moved over there on Rollerwood, White family would not let him sell my daddy any land. But the man on this property told my dad, says, I don't want to sell it right now, but if I ever sell it, I'll sell it to you. In 1946, he told my daddy that he would sell it. After he died, he had some stepson. Then they came back and was going to try to take the land back from my daddy. The third time they came back, he walked out on the porch with a double-ass shotgun. And he said, now I bought the land, I paid for it. And if you ever come back here to claim this land, he said, I'm going to kill you before you get out of the car. Can you describe a little bit about the context of who, who Mary Cole is and uh -huh. what exactly was happening in 1946 and, and earlier? Yeah, so Mary Cole, there she's talking about her father, who was really a central figure um, in, in Chapel Hill, in the role of Chapel Hill. And she was talking before about the land that he owned, which eventually became the sort of like center of you know business, um, commerce, meeting, it was a big farm, and they also had the church in his house, they had like the general store in there, certain parts of the, the story, and it was just really central, and she was talking about, you know, how her mother every morning would cook, and everybody from around the neighborhood would come there for a free breakfast, and it was just huge, and so what, what he's doing there is protecting all of this for everyone, I think, um, during that time, which, which is pretty important, um, it's really just standing his ground, and as geographers, we, we often struggle to put together pieces of information, you know. We try to think about, like, 
where can we get this stuff? Where can we get the, the data in order to tell us about this place? And um, the amazing thing about oral histories is that they give you access to stories that haven't been recorded. Let me play the next clip with Regina Merritt, who I think is Mary Cole's daughter. That's right. And what I'm afraid of is what's going on in Chapel Hill is going to start coming out here. We can't build a house unless we got two acres of land. They don't want to start building houses all out here and building developments and stuff. And then they, somehow they're going to try to take our property. They're going to do something with the taxes. This is what I'm thinking. They're going to do something with the taxes. What's going to force us to either lose our property or find a way to make us sell it to developers where they can start putting lots on our property. I, I just see it coming. Right before that, she had been talking explicitly about rural gentrification and how there are all these instances that she could sort of recite. And she remembers of, you know, adjacent properties being taken up and, you know, folks coming in and like just taking land through some way or another, you know, if the, the hairs are all split up, hairs are all split up and, you know, across the country, it's, it gets easier and easier the, the more land is passed on if it's not given to an individual. She had also been approached you know, for people buying her own land. And it's just, it's just this constant thing of expansion and, and what's happening in Chapel Hill. It also makes me think about, you know, this project is centered on the rural South and rural areas. So is a part of the history that you're uncovering change within the rural South? I get the sense that these are sort of like autonomous communities in a lot of respects, but that's, of course, diminishing with, you know, farmland having... I've been gone, and I do, I do think there are changes in the rural, rural areas, and I do think a lot of that has to do with the relationships between sort of centers like Chapel Hill proper and um, sort of the rural areas of Chapel Hill. I think the sometimes um, discouraging part of the findings that Darius comes across, what doesn't change, um, and you know, I see that really reflected in that interview. So what doesn't change? Well, that your land can still be taken from you. It may not be someone showing up with a gun, um, but it can get taken by other means. Well, let me play the last clip that you sent me, Darius, which I think is the most uh, direct. Just thankful I was able to live here. My grandfather gave me this property through my mom because he was giving all his children property. And so instead of him deeding the property to her and her having to deed it to me, he just deeded it to me. And we walked out there on the side of the land and my grandfather told me, he said, Ann, he said, now you take care of this property. I said, Grandpa, don't worry, I will. They're taking too much of our property. They'll never get mine if I got anything to do with it. What came through during that interview is that it took an active commitment down from, you know, Grandpapa with the shotgun to Regina Merritt talking about how she's put it in her will, like, I'm leaving enough money and insurance for them, to, my kids to keep this land, like, it's not going anywhere. And it's, it's remarkable that, you know, it's sort of historically has taken so much for African Americans to just maintain something that seems like so basic to citizenship, like owning land over time from then to now. And, you know, if you, I mean, if you look at the stats, it's, they're quite clearly a, sort of an exception in being able to do that, to pass on the land, especially from one area to the other. So, yeah, it's, it's eye-opening, I think. And it sort of shows that 
for me, that it's worth asking, how, to what extent sort of has the narrative of Jim Crow and this sort of tension, this difficulty, really had, how, to what extent has it not been interrupted? Um, and what continuities do we see from then to now? Tip jar. Sometimes when you're in an interview, you think you have the road from beginning to end, but it doesn't always work out the way you imagined, and sometimes you have to find back ways out of awkward situations. Hi, um, so our name is Ashley Farmer. I am a historian of African American women's history, and I study women in the black power movement in particular. Um, I'm currently writing a book called What You've Got is a Revolution, Black Women's Movements for Black Power, which is an intellectual and social history about women's ideas of womanhood in the black power era. And I understand oral history is a big part of your work. It is indeed. I've used it for two different ways. One is just to get to know some of the women that um, rank and file members of the Black Panther Party or work at the grassroots level that way. And also, um, I'm an intellectual historian in the sense that I talk about their ideas of womanhood and how they translated and moved and thought about um, being a woman in this context and wrote about it. Um, so I use oral history to get a sense of how ideas were circulating among the movement, particularly in an era where women's ideas weren't always recorded in the written word in the same way. So as you know, the theme of this podcast episode is about backways, but we're talking about advice for oral historians. So I think you've had some experiences that you've had to learn from in doing your own oral interviews. And so what, what kind of advice are you, do you want to share? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I find when I want to interview a woman who was an activist is I want to go in chronological order. That historian in me wants a beginning, middle, and end to their story. Um, so I was often starting by asking them questions about their upbringing, their family life, um, you know, their experiences with racism, to try to get a sense of their mentality or the flow of ideas that was going on in their childhood that led them to be attracted to a particular set of ideas um, that a particular group espoused. But sometimes I ran into the issue of women wanting to be a little bit more shielded about those aspects of their life. Um, they didn't always understand when I contacted them to um, talk about their activism that they necessarily would want to talk about um, some of the other parts of their life, particularly their upbringing if it was more difficult um, or if it was a little bit unsavory. So I found one of the ways to approach it differently was to, before I started the interview, um, send them perhaps either an image or an article that they in fact wrote or an article or an image that would have been circulated around the time in which they were members of a particular organization and have them start talking about um, if they read it, do they remember writing it, um, what kinds of ideas were, talk were going on, discussions were going on that led them to write these kinds of texts, um, typically a text perhaps about, say, being a black revolutionary woman or an African woman or a pan-African woman. Um, so I found that it was a way to get at some of the ideas um, and their thoughts from their childhood um, and from um, the experiences before they became activists without going um, kind of headstrong in and asking them in ways in which t they made them pull back or maybe they found somewhat offensive. When I first asked you to do this, you were even hesitant to send me clips of some of your interviewees because of you weren't sure, you know, it might feel like an invasion of their, of their story and their mm -hmm. space. And so it's just interesting how you found this way to get people to open up mm -hmm. in a kind of an unconventional way. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, important for um, the subjects that I interview to feel comfortable with me, but also to understand that um, I have respect and reverence for 
the things that they might want to keep private while also wanting to just learn about them so that I can better speak about the things that they did publicly. Um, and so I think it's an important way of um, showing that I've done my research on them, that I take their activism seriously, and that, um, you know, like I said, I'm looking for their personal um, interested story just to inform the person that they were and not to kind of print salacious details, right, or anything that they might find um, that they would so what sort of general advice would you have for the oral historian out there who discovers that the people they're talking to might not want to talk about a certain issue? What sort of advice would you have for them to find a back way out of a, of a situation like that? Um, you know, I think there's a couple of ways you can approach it. One is that you have, if you decide that it's really just not relevant to what you really need to know, you know, I mean, sometimes we ask these questions as kind of leading in or warm-up questions, but they may not really be what it is that, you know, the kernel that you're after. Um, just say, you know what, that's fine. Let's move on to this section that you feel maybe feel a little bit more comfortable talking about, you know? Um, so just totally kind of reversing stream and trying a different way. Um, the other way to doing it might be um, to talk about a story that maybe one of their other fellow activists told you. Um, often I found that I um, encountered women like through a network, right? You said, she'd say, this happened and you should talk to my friend about this who knows better about this aspect or this aspect. Um, so um, A, showing that you, know, you had taken the time to learn about them, but also taking the time to learn about their network and the places um, and the people that they interacted with, I think can um, convey or may perhaps give a sense of security that you know, you're taking their seriously and the information that they give you, you know, is important and you're guarding that in um, really trying to learn about that in a respectful manner. Intellectual history is often typically thought of as the history of the written word and ideas, which is important, and I don't want to discount that by any stretch of the matter, but also thinking about um, if we live in a system or in a structure that doesn't always record people's ideas with equal measure, how oral history can help us think about ideas and genealogies of ideas differently. Thanks for listening to Press Record from the Southern Oral History Program. To find more information, please visit our website at SOHP.org. And if you have any ideas, questions, or concerns, feel free to email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Look out for our next episode coming in late March 2016. So Evan, as we always say at the end of our interviews, is there anything else we should have asked?